Well, it's a great joy to be with you all this morning. I've enjoyed getting to know many of you uh, over the, the weekend and the men's event. I bring you greetings from the Sterling Park Baptist Church down in Sterling, Virginia. So the brothers and sisters there are uh, praying for you all and uh, rejoicing at all that God's doing in your midst. Uh, and it's my privilege now to uh, bring God's word uh, to you this morning. I want to look together at the book of Revelation. We'll read it in, uh, in just a second. But one of the ways of trying to understand the, the organization of particularly the second half of the book of Revelation is to see it as a series of cycles, uh, a series of sort of cyclical conflicts that lead up finally and ultimately to the complete establishment of God's kingdom at the end of the book. So starting in about chapter 12, we, we see the apostle John has a vision of a woman who's about to give birth to a baby. And it's a, it's a symbolic picture of Christ's arrival on earth. Uh, conflict is introduced when we meet a great red dragon, so a picture of Satan waiting anxiously to destroy the child. And as you keep reading, you see this description of an ongoing conflict that unfolds throughout history, a conflict between Satan and Jesus, a conflict that draws in their respective followers as well. At the end of chapter 16, uh, you see that there is going to be a day when this battle comes to a final climactic conclusion. We read there in chapter 16 that the forces of the kings of the world are called together at a place called Armageddon. Uh, All the sort of anti-God forces in the world of the the dragon, Uh, we meet a a beast and a false prophet. They they gather together all the kings of the world and there's a, a final battle in this ongoing conflict. Uh, There is going to be a day, we read, uh, that there is a great day of God Almighty. And so this morning, as we think together about what it means that Jesus is our King, uh, I want to read together uh, a description of the the first part of that great battle. So if you would, please uh, turn in your Bibles, if you have a Bible, and please stand uh, as I read Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of the heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, 
the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, as we think about this passage, which is somber and glorious, what I hope to do is to show you that King Jesus is worthy of your love, worthy of your worship, worthy of your confidence and your obedience. In the cosmic showdown between the beast and the lamb who was slain, the book of Revelation shows us that we must take sides. We either stand with the rider on the horse or we stand with the beast. Our loyalties are with the forces of earth or the forces of heaven. I think all of the details that were shown here in Revelation 19 are are meant to point us to the glory and the greatness of King Jesus. They urge us to see him for who he is and to follow him as our king. So in order to see that, let's look at this glorious picture of the Lord Jesus that emerges in this passage. There in verse 11, John sees the heavens open and a white horse emerges. And while we're not immediately given the name of the rider of this horse, we'll, we'll see as we go through the symbolism that it's clear that this is in fact Jesus. That becomes explicit when he's referred to a bit later as the Word of God, right? A name used in John's gospel for none other than the Lord Jesus. John takes time in this section to uh, describe Jesus in very specific detail. Now, depending on how you interpret the book of Revelation, this may be a literal picture of what Jesus will look like when he returns, or these may be symbolic descriptions that point us to the truth about Jesus and his return. If you have questions about how to interpret the book of Revelation, I refer you to that guy. I'm sure he's got all the answers to anything you might want to know. But in either case, no matter how you refer or interpret the book of Revelation, the point has to be the same. When Jesus returns, it will be glorious. He will be glorious. John wants us to know what it will be like when King Jesus comes back so that we can prepare now, so that our hearts will worship him now. And so to that end, let's look at the specifics here. There's a lot of data in these verses. So let me give you five adjectives that describe what we see or that are used to describe Jesus here. So if you, if you are a note taker, these adjectives will, will be the points of my outline. First, we see that Jesus is sovereign. That's the meaning of the white horse that he's riding upon. It is a picture of authority and victory. So in the Roman Empire, the Roman Senate would occasionally grant to a returning conqueror the right to enter triumphantly into the city riding on a white horse. Uh, The symbolism is clear. There in verse 12, you see that, that Jesus wears on his head many diadems. These are the crowns that a king would wear. 
Remember, perhaps, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, that in his effort to counterfeit and imitate the reign of God, the the beast that we see rising out of the sea wears ten diadems on its seven heads. But the point here is at the end, Jesus is the one wearing the crowns. If you think about it, a a king wears a crown that represents the power of the nation that he rules. We even sometimes speak of, of a, a nation's authority as, as the crown, right? The crown says this, the crown does this. Jesus wears many diadems because he rules all nations. His domain is limitless. He doesn't just rule one nation, that would be one crown. He has many. His authority over the world is complete and total. In fact, that's what we see at the end of verse 15. If you look there, it says that Jesus rules the nations with a rod of iron, The way that phrase is structured in the original Greek that John would have written in is emphatic. The emphasis in that sentence in Greek is on the word he. He rules the nation with a rod of iron. He does, which is to say no one else does. This is the third time in the book of Revelation that we see this idea of ruling with a rod of iron. Uh, The imagery perhaps is foreign to us. Our rulers, for the most part, don't carry scepters. But it's a a reference back to Psalm 2, where we see the Lord speaking to his anointed king. It says there in Psalm 2, starting in verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That psalm, Psalm 2, which found a a provisional fulfillment in the, the line of the earthly King David, here is brought to pass in a perfect way by King Jesus. His rule is complete and utter over all nations. Those who oppose him are like a, a, a an earthen pot being struck with a rod of iron. In verse 12, we see that Jesus has a name written that no one knows but himself. It doesn't tell us where it's written. We don't know what it says, but, but Jesus does. And so this is mysterious. In the ancient understanding of the world, knowing someone's name gave you some degree of power or authority over him or her. So maybe you remember the story of Jacob wrestling with his mysterious opponent back in Genesis 32. Jacob desperately wants to know the name of his sparring partner, but he never actually gets it. So perhaps this mysterious name indicates that Jesus can't be stopped, that there's no way to get the upper hand over him. Perhaps it's just meant to show that there are aspects of God's plan for the return of Jesus that we can't comprehend or know at this point. But in any event, though there's a name written that no one knows, there's also a name written on his thigh. Did you catch that there in verse 16? He has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, and that name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a perfect summary. The Jesus that we are being shown here is utterly sovereign. There are so many kings, so many states, so many presidents, prime ministers, systems, armies, powers in our world. But, brothers and sisters, none of them abide. The Roman Empire that that had exiled John to the island of Patmos in the the late 80s, early 90s A.D., it didn't abide. The authority and strength and dominion of every nation comes and goes in 
what is in the scope of history nothing but the blink of an eye. But here is the king, the king with a capital K, the king over all kings, the Lord of anyone who would think themselves to be a Lord. So what does that mean for us? Well, if you remember Psalm 2 that we read just a moment ago, where God speaks to his anointed king about ruling with a rod of iron. Look at how that psalm applies that piece of information. What should we do in light of God's anointed king and his coming? Well, the psalm continues on past what I just read for you in verse 10 and 11, Psalm 2. The psalmist says, Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. In light of this anointed king that God is raising up to rule over the nations with a rod of iron, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Brothers and sisters, if that's the instruction given to the kings of the earth, how much more should we see it as a command for us to do so? If you would be wise, then take this picture of Jesus as a warning. He is utterly sovereign, and so serve him with fear. Rejoice with trembling at the picture of this returning king. Joyfully acknowledge the authority of King Jesus over your life. So Jesus, we see, is sovereign. Second, we see that Jesus is good. There in verse 11, he is called faithful and true. He didn't get to his position of authority through underhanded dealings and trickery. What he says can be trusted. What he promises, he will do. There in verse 13, as I mentioned, we see yet another name for Jesus. He's called the Word of God. That reminds us of how John's Gospel begins where we're told that Jesus is the divine Word. He is the one who upholds the universe by the Word of His power, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the one who perfectly reflects and communicates the glory of His heavenly Father. And like any ruler, Jesus exercises judgment. You see that there in verse 11. While the judgment of an earthly king or a governor might be corrupted by any number of factors, we see juries make bad decisions. We see presidents and kings make mistakes. They can be corrupted in their judgment by any number of factors. They can get bad information. They can be bribed. They can be vindictive. They could have a desire to curry favor or consolidate power. They might have a a lack of discernment or, or poor reasoning. But unlike any earthly ruler, King Jesus judges in righteousness. There in verse 11, in righteousness, he judges. Jesus is holy and incorruptible. He has no ill motivations. His eyes, as we see in verse 12, are like blazing fire. That's a picture of the fact that nothing can be hidden from him. Everything is laid bare and exposed before his gaze. He knows all and he sees all. So there's never a lack of information. There's never a a distortion because of personal vice or animus. The picture here is of a sovereign king who is good. Brothers and sisters, what good news for us. A king who uses his limitless power for God's purposes. 
totally unlike any other ruler. There's never been a king like this. Right, just look at the, the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, set aside the pagan nations, right, that we could make the case in spades for the, the wickedness of, of pagan rulers. Right, put those guys aside. Just consider for a second the, the leaders of the nation of Israel. Think about the Ahabs, uh, all of those guys. Uh, look, at, look at them and look at the, the evil that so often corrupted their reign. And, and even look at the very best rulers of Israel. Uh, people like Samuel, Moses, David, Solomon, Josiah. Uh, great leaders in their own way, but each was terribly flawed. Each made it clear through their life that they were not ultimately good. But here, we see King Jesus. Unlike the rulers of the nations, unlike the, the flawed kings of earth, uncompromising, unmoved by opinion polls, uninterested in exploitation, unmoved by injustice and temptation and wickedness. Friends, this is a king worth submitting to because he's good. Now maybe you hear that and there's a bit of a hitch. Maybe you're thinking, hold on now. Isn't, isn't this country founded on the idea that having a king is a bad thing? Isn't it pretty much accepted that actually democracy is the very best way to run the world? It sounds like what you're describing here is a dictatorship. I mean, Jesus sounds like the ultimate authoritarian ruler. I mean, utterly sovereign? I mean, why would I want a king at all? Well, I think C.S. Lewis has a good way of cutting through the confusion here. He writes in one of his essays this that I think is helpful. He writes, A great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau who believed in democracy because they thought mankind so wise and so good that everyone deserved a share in the government. The danger of defending democracy on those grounds is that they're not true. I find that they're not true without looking further than myself. I don't deserve a share in governing a hen roost, much less a nation. The real reason for democracy is just the reverse. Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. Do you see what Lewis is saying? The reason why we are wise to spread out authority over the population is that no one is good enough to exercise it alone. But if you had a perfect ruler, if you had one who would exercise authority perfectly, then why on earth would you want anyone else making decisions about what to do? Wouldn't you joyfully submit to his rule and his reign? Brothers and sisters, the good news from Revelation 19 is we have just such a king who is coming back. He is sovereign, and he is good. The third thing we see about Jesus in this passage is that he is terrifying. You see there in verse 14, the armies of heaven accompany the king. They're dressed in bright white. They follow on white horses as well. And look what they're doing. Absolutely nothing. Right? We read the description of this warrior force but they're not actually what's frightening here. They're not actually the center of the action. You would rather face that army any day than face the king on the horse. The army of heaven doesn't appear to be scary, but Jesus is scary. Look there in verse 15. A sharp sword comes out of his mouth. 
It is the weapon with which he will strike down and conquer the nations. It is a picture of judgment by the word of Jesus' mouth. Back in John chapter 12, verse 48, we read that Jesus says this, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And so this sword reminds us that there is a perfect standard by which we will be judged. There is a truth and we are obligated to live in conformity to it. Oftentimes in in talking to people and asking them their opinions about God and how they live their lives, they'll say something like, well, I like to think of God as this, X, Y, and Z. And I, I don't like to think about God in that way because, you know, it doesn't really fit with the way I want the world to be. But friends, it doesn't matter what you think. You realize you will not be judged by your own standards on that last day. Though, like Lewis, I don't even think we meet our own standards most of the time. No, there is a truth. There is a word that's been spoken, and we are obligated to live our lives in conformity to it. Even more terrifying than this sword is the blood. There in verse 13, we see that Jesus' robe is dipped in blood. Now, where did that blood come from? At the end of verse 15, we read that He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Here's the image. In those days, they made wine by piling grapes into a winepress. It was a large stone vat. And then people would climb in and crush the grapes with their feet. There'd be a spout and one part of the wine press and the, the wine would separate from the grapes and it would pour out through the spout. The winemaker would be left with a robe covered in the juice of the grapes. Revelation pictures the wrath of God against sin, the wrath of God against rebellion as a wine press. But instead of grapes, there are people in the press And so Jesus here is said to tread, to crush, to stomp on the contents of that press. Instead of being covered in grape juice, his his robe is covered in blood. It's an image drawn from Isaiah 63. If you remember that chapter of Isaiah's vision begins with the picture of a conqueror coming from the lands of Edom and Basra, marching, as it were, through enemy territory. And his robe is scarlet. Isaiah questions the conqueror in Isaiah 63, verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? It sounds just like Jesus in Revelation 19. The answer comes there in Isaiah 63, verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. It's a ghastly, terrifying image. Here in Revelation 19, the the imagery is clearly meant to connect us back to Isaiah 63. Jesus' robes are covered in blood as a sign that He is the one chosen by the Father to execute His wrath on a rebellious world. You see there in verse 11, Jesus comes faithful and true to judge. Okay, if you've read the Bible, probably none of that is surprising to you. 
There at the end of the verse, what does it say? Not just to judge. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. Maybe that surprises you. I think the popular picture of Jesus is that he was peaceful and serene, an advocate of unconditional love and acceptance. And that is true. But Jesus' meekness and humility and tenderness and compassion does not mean that he is not powerful, that he is not just, that he is not furious at people who sinfully rebel against him and try to live as their own king. The picture here of Jesus is terrifying. Right? If this were a movie, you might not let your young children watch it. Flaming eyes, blood-spattered robe, holding a sword, coming to make war. Now, perhaps you object. Uh, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. And you can go with most of this, but only up to a point. Right? If we want to say Jesus is good and powerful, fine. Christians can believe that if they want to. But once you start talking about divine justice on sinners, now you've gone too far. You've overstepped the boundary. Well, it's strange. People today, I think, can't quite make up their mind. We, we like love. We like tolerant love. We like a love that overlooks. And so if people reject Jesus and rebel against his authority, well, the only decent thing to do is to give them a pass. But the Bible holds the idea of redemption and the idea of divine justice together. Uh, they, they are held together in perfect tension. Remember there in Isaiah 63, the returning conqueror covered in blood says this, the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. Redemption and vengeance are closely associated. Redemption for the followers of the Messiah is connected to God's justice against those who continue to reject Him and oppose Him. If you get to the very end of the book of Revelation, you see that God's ultimate plan is to, to remake this world, to create a new heavens and a new earth. And it's going to be a place where there is no sin, no sorrow, no pain, no tears. Anything that makes life so difficult here and now in this world, God says, will not be present in eternity. But in order for us to live in that world, God must be committed to putting away all sin and injustice. He can't allow wickedness and sin into that world or else it will be ruined. The redemption for the followers of Christ are connected to God's justice against those who continue to reject and oppose him. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian. And from his experience, I think he's in a position to help us think through this. If, if you object to the idea of God's justice, his wrath against sin, uh, Wolf will say it's probably at least in part because you live in a comfortable, easy, peaceful, secure society. It might be hard for us as Americans to understand the good news of God's judgment because our lives are just a little bit too easy. So Wolf reflects on the way Serbian forces terrified and tortured his people. He puts forward the notion that the people can only embrace the ideals of sort of peaceful, nonviolent resistance in the midst of terrible suffering if there really is a future expression of divine justice. Wolf says basically the only way we can embrace nonviolence now, the only way we can embrace peace now is by having confidence that there is going to be divine justice in the future. He writes this. He says, The presupposition of God's just judgment at the end of history, 
So that's what we're looking at today. Is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it? My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Wolf invites you into a thought experiment in case you, you, aren't, you aren't convinced. He says, imagine you're, you're called to give a lecture to people living in a terrible war zone. These are people who've seen their loved ones murdered and tortured. Their homes have been burnt. And your assignment is to convince these people that they ought to respond to their enemies with peace and love. And so the thesis on which you must lecture is this. We should not retaliate against our enemies because God is perfect, non-coercive love. Wolf says, do you see how insanely thin that is? Can you see how a God whose love renders him unwilling and unable to execute justice is not a God who would comfort you or compel you when you're suffering? Dismissively, Wolf continues. He says, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. If you think God's wrath is incompatible with Jesus' teachings about peace, about turning the other cheek, if you think God's judgment is incompatible with Western ideals of peaceful resistance and nonviolence, Wolf would say, I'll bet you grew up in the suburbs. That theory makes perfect sense if you're sitting in an easy chair with your central air conditioning wondering what you should eat in front of your big TV. Wolf concludes, in a scorched land... Soaked in the blood of the innocent, that theory will invariably die. The book of Revelation, perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, embraces the reality of the good news of God's wrath against all sin, all rebellion, all injustice. And brothers and sisters, that is the foundation of hope for all those who suffer in this world. God sees, God knows, and God will judge We've seen that Jesus is sovereign. We've seen that he's good, that he's terrifying. The fourth adjective is that Jesus is victorious. You see that there in verses 17 to 21. As I mentioned at the outset, in previous chapters in Revelation, we've seen the kings of the earth begin to assemble at Armageddon to make war against the Lamb, against Jesus. Here in verse 19, we see that they're gathered for the fight. Now, verses 17 and 18 give us a pretty good idea of how everything's about to go down, right? An an angel appears in the sun and says, hey, birds, get ready. Basically, we need a lot of vultures to clean this one up. The battle's over quickly. At least the description of it is very brief there in verse 20. The beast and the false prophet are captured. They're thrown into the lake of fire. Two-thirds of the sort of counterfeit trinity are done away with. Uh, If you continue reading on in Revelation, you can see what happens to the dragon. As for the rest, the kings of the world, the followers of the beast, we see there in verse 21 that they are, they are slain by Jesus' sword, by the word that comes from his mouth. The end of the chapter there is a grisly picture of their corpses being torn apart by the birds. Right, The ending is not subtle. There are not casualties on both sides. The outcome is never in doubt. The rout is total. Jesus is victorious. One-fifth and final adjective. Jesus is good. He's terrifying. He's victorious. He's sovereign. The fifth and final thing for us to see is that he is merciful. 
This isn't explicit, I think, in the passage, but in the larger context, I think we can see it. I want to go back to that picture of Jesus' robe dipped in blood. As I said, the image seems to be a reference back to Isaiah 63 and the blood of God's trampled enemies. If you follow along in the book of Revelation, I think this image here in chapter 19 will remind you of something else. There's actually another place in the book of Revelation where we see robes and blood connected together. Back in Revelation 7, we read about a great multitude of people clothed in bright white robes and praising God forever in heaven. Uh, John asks who they are, and in Revelation 7.14, the angel tells him, uh, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see, in chapter 7, we have the exact opposite picture of what we see here in Revelation 19. And both are true. Here in chapter 7, it's not the blood of God's enemies that are staining Jesus' robe. Rather, it's the blood of Jesus Himself washing the robes of God's people. God's people who used to be His enemies. You see, all of us naturally are on the wrong team. We are enlisted in the wrong army. We are naturally opposed to God and so refuse His rule. We naturally don't want to submit to the rule and authority of King Jesus. And so the fate that all of us deserve is what we see here at the end of chapter 19. Again, look there in verse 18. The birds are invited to eat the flesh of kings. That's not me. Captains, not me. Mighty men, not me. All men. Oh, there I am. Both free and slave, both small and great. It doesn't get more comprehensive than that. Everyone is lumped into this camp. Everyone is destined to have their blood staining the robe of Jesus, so to speak. But brothers and sisters, the God of justice is also the God of love and mercy. And in His great kindness, He sent His Son to make His enemies into His beloved children. King Jesus, the one who will return with flaming eyes of judgment, a sword coming out of His mouth. He came to earth as a humble baby. He lived in poverty and humility, teaching us about God and loving people perfectly. And King Jesus, the one who will trample the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, willingly died for us. And as He died, God the Father placed on Him all of the wrath, all of the punishment, all of the fury that we deserve for our sins. Don't you see, Jesus went into the winepress of God's wrath for us. His robes are stained with His own blood as He was beaten and mocked. And after He died on the cross, God raised Him from the dead. And now He is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and He will return, as we see here, coming in vengeance and with justice, not with mercy. But for now, brothers and sisters, until that day, there is forgiveness for God's enemies. We can come to Jesus in humble repentance and faith and find that the blood that He shed on the cross has the power to cleanse us from our sins. In the image of Revelation 7, it has the power to wash our sin-stained robes and make them white and pure. Friend, I urge you to go to King Jesus. If you're not a follower of His already, go to Him today. 
He will be merciful to you. Even if you've lived your life in rebellion against Him, He can wash your spiritual robe white. He can make you take your place in that dazzling army dressed in white. I'd urge you, if you have questions about what that means, talk to the person who invited you this morning. You can talk to me or to Wesley or anyone you've seen up here. We'd be delighted to tell you more about what it means to put your faith in Christ and find salvation. So at the outset, I told you the goal of this passage and as a result, this sermon was to get you to see Jesus for who he is so that you will gladly submit your life to him. I hope that now that you've seen some of the data, the choice is clear. There are two powers at war, the kingdom of the beast and the kingdom of the lamb. There is no Switzerland in this conflict. You must declare a side. All the beast cares about is that you do not follow King Jesus. If you reject him, you are placing yourself squarely in the will and in the army of the beast. But hopefully you can see that that's an insane, suicidal decision. Friends, you have to choose a master this morning. You can choose to reject Jesus and simply go about your own way, doing what you think is right, doing what you think is best. In so doing, you will be embracing the side of the evil one. Or you can embrace the reign of King Jesus. He is sovereign. He is terrifying. He is victorious. And He is good and merciful. Why wouldn't you want to love and follow this King. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are in awe of the picture of you that we see in your word. We both tremble and rejoice at what we see of your sovereignty, your victory, your goodness, and your mercy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great love that you showed in sending your Son to be our Redeemer, to enter into the winepress of your fury on our behalf, to have his robes stained in his own blood rather than ours. Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us hearts to love? Would you give us knees to kneel at the throne of the Lord Jesus? Would you keep us in his love, we pray, until that great day when he returns. And we do pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly. Amen.